Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Film Week here on Laist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for hanging with us on this Friday. You know, for decades, Studio Ghibli has been enchanting audiences with its breathtakingly beautiful movies, masterful storytelling, stunning visuals, really. And this year, North American audiences have had the opportunity to experience the films on the silver screen during the annual Studio Ghibli Fest. This weekend in theaters across Southern California, Ghibli fans are invited to watch Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke, which made its U.S. debut in 1999. Miyazaki co-founded Studio Ghibli in the mid-1980s. His final film with the studio, though he said it's been his final before, it's titled The Boy and the Heron, was released in Japan last month, and it will appear in North America for the first time next month at the Toronto International Film Festival. So for the rest of the hour, we want to delve into the profound impact that Miyazaki has made on cinema and explore the elements that have led his work to gain really worldwide recognition. Joining us for this conversation is Charles Solomon, film critic for LAist and Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. Welcome, Charles. Hi, Austin. Nice to see you. Well, I think that there's some Miyazaki 101 necessary because I just started watching his films this year. I would still consider myself so new to them. But for a person who's maybe only grown up on Disney films, what does a person need to know about Miyazaki and his style? Well, all of Japanese animation, which has become exceedingly popular with younger audiences, is so different from American animation. In this country, we've put all these little fences around animation and said, oh, it's for kids. Oh, it can't do anything violent. Oh, it can't you know, handle any serious themes. That doesn't exist in Japan. And... The term genius, I think, is wildly overused in our society, but I think the art of animation has certainly produced three. Uh, The first was Windsor McKay, who creates an art form out of nothing. The second is Walt Disney, who completely transforms the art form according to his vision. And I believe Miyazaki is the third, uh, Mm. because similarly to, to Disney, he has just given us a vision of what this art form can do that no one really expected. And he's been enormously influential. If you talk to artists like Dean Deblois, who directed, you know, How to Train Train Your Dragon, uh, to three-time Oscar winner Pete Docter, to John Lasseter, to uh, any of the the great animation directors, you know, working today, and the the animators who, who make the films, they'll all cite Miyazaki as an influence that his visions are so powerful and his storytelling so compelling uh, that they look to him to learn. Um, I remember Lasseter telling me years ago, he said, when we're stumped on a film at Pixar, we just go in the theater and watch one of Miyazaki's movies. It doesn't have 
have to have anything to do with the film we're making, but just that skill and that artistry will inspire us and we'll go back and, you know, refresh and, and tackle the problem. Um, it's very interesting. He creates very interesting, very complex hero, heroines in a way that his American counterparts don't. You know, we seem to be stuck with a with a raft of spunky, very spunky, um, you know, sort of alienated, maladroit girls who are really good at math, but who can only do things if they have superpowers. You know, think of Ruby Gilman, Girl Kraken, as opposed to the heroines of Miyazaki's films who are real girls who don't do anything a real girl couldn't do by and large, but who have the courage and resolution and resourcefulness to act and with agency and to, you know, change a situation to tackle a dangerous foe. In Princess Mononoke, the title character is uh, a feral child who's been raised by these. Uh, it's they're kami. They're they they are nature spirits. They're the wolf gods hmm. who are in contact in conflict with humans from Irontown who are starting to cut down the forest to make iron. But again, the world that Miyazaki depicts is never simplistic. The Lady Eboshi who runs Irontown, it is staffed with ex-prostitutes whose contracts she bought out and with lepers who are otherwise outcasts. And in this world, in her town, they have power. They are citizens they're part of the society in a way they never were before and i remember when i asked miyazaki about her because i met him for the first time uh in the publicity tour for princess mononoke uh he just said that both her mercy her mercy and her cruelty have no boundaries you know, it's just so interesting that you say, you know, we put a fence around animation in the U.S. and all these very heavy themes or certain characters that are featured in Princess Mononoke. Obviously, when the film came out in Japan in the late 90s, there was a lot of concern about those themes as well. I'm curious to what extent you think his life, his early years, influenced his later work. Whereas, you know, Walt Disney was already making movies by the time that he was born. And kind of the tone for Disney, got the princess theme, it was already there. It was already established. Conversely, Miyazaki was born in what was then the Japanese Empire, um, he eventually, with his family, had to end up fleeing, I believe, a few times after bombings. And so he saw a lot of his country post-war. I'm sure he saw a lot of the the bombed-out buildings and a lot of the pain that happened since then. Do you see any sense that uh, what he saw growing up and, and watching Japan rebuild after that conflict uh, really tied into how he came to view the world and the messages that he tried to get out in this film? Oh, very much. Um uh, Miyazaki's earliest memories are as a little boy, his father carrying him to safety when areas near where they lived were uh, being bombed. His family owned a company that made parts for airplanes, so they were relatively comfortable. But then when the bombings came, they did have to flee. And you find that condemnation of violence, of militarism, uh, is a very strong uh, element in his work. Think of Howell's Moving Castle, where he, where they work, they right. have to fight, stop the war. 
uh, the god monster that is sort of technology run amok in uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. That runs through all his films, as does the very strong ecological concerns, which are, of course, an essential part of Japanese culture. The seasons and nature figure very, very strongly. And that's something that Miyazaki puts forth in pretty much all his films. Spirited away, the gods are coming to Yubaba's spa Mm -hmm. to be purged of the pollution and the filth that we've inflicted on nature. And he told me he got the idea for that film, particularly the sequence where uh, Chihiro was helping to purge the uh, stink god of the things that had defiled this powerful river deity. Uh, she's pulling a bicycle out that, that and all this wire and wow. junk. And Miyazaki had taken part in a cleanup of a stream near where he lives with the local you know, volunteer group. And that gave him the idea for that. Um, similarly, in The Wind Rises, he deals with the paradox that he's fascinated by airplanes, particularly early airplanes, but then sees them used for destruction and for war. And the characters in that lament that they've created these beautiful artistic structures and they'll be used to destroy. Talking right now with Charles Solomon with Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We're talking about the work of Miyazaki just in time for the Studio Ghibli Fest, which is happening in this weekend in studios across Southern California. Ghibli fans can watch Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke, which made its U.S. debut in 1999. When we come back, we are going to fold Steve Alpert into the conversation. Steve Alpert is author of Sharing a House with the Never-Ending Man, 15 Years at Ghibli Studio. We're going to look at... Some of the work that's come out of there in the years since the studio was founded and really what made that work have such an incredible impact on just the way that people thought that you could make cartoons. I'm Austin Cross. This is Film Week. We are back in 60 seconds. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. It's Film Week here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle, and we are talking about the work of Hayao Miyazaki just in time for Ghibli Fest, 
fans across Southern California are invited to watch some of his movies in theaters throughout this year. Next up is Princess Mononoke, which you can watch as early as I believe this coming weekend. I want to bring into the conversation right now Steve Albert, author of Sharing a House with the Never-Ending Man, 15 years at Ghibli Studio. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about what the thought was when this studio was founded? I know that Hayao Miyazaki had worked for a number of years uh, in the animation industry prior uh, to this founding of the studio. What do you think was uh, the idea at the time? What themes he maybe wanted to explore? Um, Well, I think it was about uh, being able to make uh, feature-length animation um, you know, previously they'd been doing TV animation, TV series, and um, they want they're, they're filmmakers and they wanted to make serious films in a longer format that let them explore more serious themes. And um, Ghibli uh, is unusual in that the um, the filmmakers themselves own the studio and control it so they can really make what they want. It, mm. It's not really a uh, commercial enterprise. You know, they, they make what they want to make. So uh, I think the answer to your question is the films that you talked about before, the films that they make, that's what they wanted to make. And films like that would have been harder to make you know, uh, if the studio were worried about just making money. Well, and uh, if I can pick up on that, unlike American studios, the artists at Studio Ghibli make what they want. Like Miyazaki storyboards his films himself. And when he's happy with the storyboard, they make the film. It doesn't have executive notes. It doesn't have to deal with advisory committees. It doesn't have to deal with market testing. Miyazaki makes the film he wants to make, period. I understand yeah. that. Well, I, I don't oh, want to give the impression that it's entirely pure. I mean, there are <laughs> there are obviously some commercial, there are other, other um, entities that help fund the films. And especially we were talking about uh, Mononoke, he made Princess Mononoke. Uh, when Miyazaki first proposed the film, there was actually quite a lot of feedback from the uh, the, um, the production partners for the film. Um, Princess Mononoke was a lot different than the other films that they made. And it had elements in it that were disturbing to a lot of Japanese people. And some of the mm. promotional partners weren't entirely happy about that. So they don't have complete carte blanche, but generally speaking, they do make exactly what they want. Well, I understand that Hayao Miyazaki's final film titled The Boy and the Hair, and it was released in Japan last month. Charles Solomon, have you heard much about it? Because it seems like they've gone about advertising for it in a very unconventional way. I don't even think we've seen a trailer for it. No, they've gone about not advertising for it. I've read the book it's based on, but uh, Suzuki-san, who's the head of the studio and producer, uh, said that he thinks that trailers in for Western films, I assume largely animated ones, 
give away too much of the story mm. and that he wants people to come to this with fresh eyes and not expecting uh, what what they may see. And so the poster is very noncommittal. It's one of Miyazaki's gorgeous watercolors. Um, you know, we all assume it's his last feature since he's getting on. But when I first met him during Princess Mononoke, he was already saying, oh, I think I'm going to have to retire soon. My eyes aren't as good as they used to be. And I went over so many drawings on this film. I don't know if I can keep doing that. So with Miyazaki, I think, and Steve, you can probably talk more about this than I can. I wouldn't, he's not someone I would ever try to second guess. Steve, I am kind of curious. Why do you think it is that even 20 years ago he was saying, I think this could be my last film. I think he said it a few times in his career, and he would just always come out with another one that pushed the conversation even further. Yeah, he he, he does. After every film, he says he's going to retire. Um, part of it is when they made when he made um, Princess Mononoke, he he really did more on the film himself, I think, than any animator has ever done. He really worked, uh, you know, I would say hard. He worked very hard. He worked long hours. His, he worked, he drew so many images during production that his hands swell up and started to bleed. Mm. Um, you know, I think one time he almost lost consciousness in the studio. He was really putting in a lot of time and doing a lot himself. And that may have been the first time he started talking about retirement. But whenever he says it, uh, you know, people in the studio don't believe him. Uh, it's, I think it's partly it's something he says, and partly it's an attitude he has towards making a film that he thinks that, you know, every time you make a new film, you should start afresh completely from nothing. So... One of the other things he says, which maybe I, I shouldn't talk about, but I will. Mm. After he finishes a film, he talks about closing down the studio and firing everybody and then rehiring everybody if they decide to make another film. Um, as you can choice. imagine, that's not a popular thing at the studio when he says <laughs> that. <laughs> you and, know. and no one's sure if he really means it. Well, But um, um, I think it's, it's clear that, um, you know, he's someone who will continue to work as long as he's still breathing, I think. You know, he just loves doing it. That's what he does. Yeah, He doesn't uh, want to do anything else. I mean, he did retire. And in the film, The Never-Ending Man, a documentary about him that, that Steve's book title plays off, you see in the beginning, he's really unhappy and he's walking slowly and he's complaining that people he knows have died and there's just a drag. He's sort of just sort of dragging himself along. And then he starts a new film, uh, a short film for the Ghibli Museum, where they show these shorts exclusively. And he's not happy with the animation. So Suzuki-san brings in some young CG animators and they start showing him what they can do to realize his vision. And he starts mm -hmm. talking to them and saying, OK, this this is movement is fine. But this character is newly born. He doesn't know what he's looking at. He has to be more uncertain. And you see him energized, and suddenly he's walking differently, and he's wow. sitting at his desk, shaking his foot with impatience. And then at the end of the movie, he turns to Suzuki-san and says, I have an idea for a feature. Do your usual magic and find the money. 
Wow, we've been talking about Hayao Miyazaki, whose films we'll get to see on the silver screen this year during the Studio Ghibli Fest. This weekend in theaters across Southern California, Ghibli fans can watch Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke, which made its U.S. debut in 1999. This half hour, we've been talking with Charles Solomon, who's with Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We also heard from Steve Alpert, author of Sharing a House with the Never-Ending Man, 15 years at Ghibli Studio. Gentlemen, my thanks to you both for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Film Week. I'm Austin Cross. Thank you so much for spending this week with us. I'll be back again with more Air Talk next week. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.